Welcome to Season 2 of Reading Jane Austen. Just before we start, I want to apologise for the fact that due to some change settings on the microphone, for the first couple of episodes there's a bit of background noise I couldn't edit out. The family of Dashwood had long been settled in Sussex. Their estate was large and their residence was at Norland Park, in the centre of their property, where, for many generations... I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is Reading Jane Austen. After a long discussion, we've agreed that for season two we'll be doing Sense and Sensibility. I think we really need to read it right after Pride and Prejudice to pick up on the parallels between the books and also to see how two books written under very similar circumstances can be so different. In this first episode, we're going to be looking at chapters one to five, but I thought before we do this, we should just give a quick overview of the publishing history because like Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility was first drafted in the 1790s, but not published until 1811 in a revised version. What it seems to be, as it is described in Claire Tomalin's biography of Jane Austen, is that after she'd finished Lady Susan, she started another novel in letters, which she called Eleanor and Marianne. And unlike with first impressions where people speculate it might have been written in letter format, there's family oral history that says Eleanor and Marianne was written in letter format. Yes. Anyway, after she sketched in Eleanor and Marianne, she then wrote First Impressions. And according to Claire Tomlin, after First Impressions, she decided she would do much better in the straight narrative form. So she started rewriting Eleanor and Marianne as Sense and Sensibility. So this was still in the 1790s. Yes. But... Once they went to Bath, it was put aside for 12 years until in 1809 they moved to Chawton. Yes, 7th of July 1809, and that was when she started going back to writing. And so, of course, Sense and Sensibility was now having a second revision at this time. And then, according to the timeline in the front of my Cambridge edition of Sense and Sensibility, it was in winter 1810 that it was accepted for publication. So that's less than a year and a half after she started revising it. Yes. And then it was finally published in October 1811. So it was conceived before First Impressions, but turned into a narrative novel after First Impressions, but published A Sense and Sensibility before Pride and Prejudice. Yes. Though it's quite possible that she was actually working on the two simultaneously when she started revising her earlier work. We just don't know. No. But it did have that similar fallow period when she wasn't doing anything and then came back and revised it, as with Pride and Prejudice. Yes. So, as I said, in this episode, we're going to be looking at chapters one to five. Now, last season, when we were giving a recap of the chapters, we used an approach I was calling summarise in a sentence. But by the end, we were finding that was just a little bit unwieldy. So for this season, we do still want to keep the summaries concise, but we shifted over to summarising in less than 100 words. We're not doing a point scoring system anymore, but we'll still each do a summary so that we can get different perspectives on what's important in the chapter. Do you have a summary of the first five chapters? Yes, I've got one here. The Dashwood sisters are left in straitened circumstances by the death of their father. The estate passes to their half-brother John, leaving the girls and their mother uncomfortable guests in their own home, Norland, with their only income, the interest on £10,000. Fanny, John's wife, persuades him to reinterpret his promise to his dying father to help them into practically nothing. Fanny's brother Edward appears 
to form an attachment with Eleanor. Fanny makes clear to Mrs Dashwood that their mother will disapprove and Mrs Dashwood resolves to leave Norland immediately. Luckily, her cousin Sir John Middleton offers them a cottage on his estate in Devonshire. I've covered pretty much the same points, though I have added a few things and left out some of the things you had. When Mr Dashwood dies, his wife and three daughters are left without a home. The property in Norland goes to John, the son of his first marriage. John promised his father he would look after them and plans to give them money, but his wife Fanny convinces him not to. Mrs Dashwood, Eleanor, Marianne and Margaret remain at Norland for six months. During this time, Fanny's brother Edward visits and seems to form an attachment for Eleanor, although Marianne finds it disappointingly flat. Eventually, a distant relative offers them a cottage in Devonshire. Marianne is devastated about leaving dear Norland. So what were your thoughts about the chapters? Well, the first thing I thought we could discuss is the extent to which sense and sensibilities are stressed as major themes in the book, that it's very much presented to us as a morality tale and that we're also told exactly which side Jane Austen is on and the values are quite clear. Mm. So sensibility is carried forward not just by Marianne but by Marianne and her mother. After their father has died they absolutely wallow in the grief. The agony of grief which overpowered them at first, she says, was voluntarily renewed, was sought for, was created again and again. There's no criticism of them for feeling grief. It's accepted that their grief is real. But the words she uses to describe the excesses of that grief are somewhat condemnatory. Yes, but Eleanor, though she was deeply affected, behaves differently. She struggles against the grief of her father's death. And she doesn't believe that John is going to give them money, but she does think that they have to behave nicely to Fanny when she arrives. In fact, actually, if you look at it, most of the things she seems to be praised for here is her concern with money, that she notices that they could be getting themselves into debt. She notices that Mrs Dashwood is likely to take a house that's too expensive for them. The other thing Eleanor does, which I'd not actually noticed until this particular close reading, is it's Eleanor who decides they have to sell the carriage as well. They've already sold their horses, that's but a... it's on Eleanor's advice that they sell the carriage. Actually, one of the other things I was just noticing was also the thing she criticises Marianne and her mother for is just being so prepared to think if they want something, it's likely to be true. To wish was to hope and to hope was to expect, which is why they interpret wrongly how far things have gone between Eleanor and Edward. Hmm. Another thing that did strike me with these opening chapters, particularly compared to Pride and Prejudice, is first of all, of course, the first line compared to the first line of Pride and Prejudice is just nothing. Yes. But also, there is no dialogue in the whole first chapter of the book. It's all description. You get one little piece in quote marks, which is John Dashwood thinking to himself that he'll give them some money. But other than that, it's all description. And you get these quite lengthy descriptions of the characters, whereas in Pride and Prejudice, she's moved much more towards the show, don't tell. You get little descriptions of the characters, but their personalities evolve through their dialogue. But here you get, when she introduces Eleanor, Eleanor, this eldest daughter, whose advice was so effectual, 
possessed a strength of understanding and coolness of judgment which qualified her, though only 19, to be the counsellor of her mother and enabled her frequently to counteract to the advantage of them all that eagerness of mind in Mrs Dashwood which must generally have led to imprudence. She had an excellent heart, her disposition was affectionate and her feelings were strong, but she knew how to govern them. It was a knowledge which her mother had yet to learn and which one of her sisters had resolved never to be taught. <laughs> so we set up both, as you said, to know where Jane Austen stands in her opinion of Eleanor and Marianne and Mrs Dashwood. But there's all this detailed sentence by sentence description of them that we just don't get in Pride and Prejudice. You just get a little description and then it comes out in the dialogue. Well, I think one of the things we noticed in Pride and Prejudice too was that all the little things where she wanted to describe, say particularly uh, Mr and Mrs Bennet's marriage, she gives a little bit in this chapter, a little bit more in another chapter, Mm. even the details of why they hadn't saved Mm. and those sort of things. And we noticed it quite frequently Mm. that in section after section she goes back and does a little bit more analysis or description of what these people are like Mm. yeah whereas in this one it's like this big info dump in the first chapter not a turgid info dump that it's a trouble to wade through that sentence by sentence is entertaining and to read but it's all there in information not in dialogue and we don't really get much coming back to it at all in the rest of the book no I mean, we're supposed to understand from the beginning what their situation is, how much money the girls have got, what they've got to spend, all that sort of thing. I'll be given a little bit later, but not much. Actually, on the point of how much money they've got, that's also something that struck me. They have precisely twice the amount of money that the Bennett family will have when Mr Bennett dies because they'll have 5,000 the Dashwoods have 10,000 and there are only three Dashwood daughters had Mr Bennett died younger Mrs Bennett and her children would have been substantially worse off than Mrs Dashwood and her children Jane and Elizabeth and Lydia and the others eventually take to their marriages a thousand pounds Eleanor and Marianne and Margaret will each take to their marriages three thousand pounds three thousand plus yeah, because it's 10,000. Yeah. Yes, they're doing much better that way. Mm. Can I make another point that I was noticing? Yeah. And this is very much even more than in Pride and Prejudice, how terribly important she sees these women with sensibilities as caring about the arts. Marianne's criticism of Edward is that he's not appreciative enough. He can't read poems properly. But Jane Austen is again implying that this demand that our feelings should be expressed is not right. That after all, Eleanor has realised that Edward has these sensibilities as strong as anyone's, Mm. but he just doesn't come out and pull them out. Mm. And it's just there, but it matters so much. Whereas in Pride and Prejudice, what they fussed about was the girls being well read. Mm. In this one, it's are they artistic? Mm. And both Eleanor and Marianne are artistic in their different ways. I think it's a given that they're also well-read. She implies that several times. It's almost like that's not even negotiable. We know these girls are well-read. Yes. A bit I noticed that I hadn't seen before is when Marianne is talking with Eleanor about Edward, Marianne seems to feel that if you're not absolutely in raptures by something then you're not truly appreciating it she talks about when edward is reading from cooper and he's so flat that the beautiful words that have often driven me wild (laughs) it's very very over the top 
And then, of course, we've got this preview of what Marianne's views of marriage are going to be. And she is not really... Well, she just couldn't be in love with Edward. He's not good-looking enough. He's not exciting enough. <laughs> and he doesn't appreciate everything she thinks she should appreciate loudly. Mm. Marianne says that... Eleanor has not my feelings and therefore she may overlook the fact that he's not animated by Cooper <laughs> and be happy with him. But it would have broke my heart had I loved him to hear him read with so little sensibility. Yeah. And she's convinced she'll never see a man she can truly love because I require so much. He must have all Edward's virtues and his person and manners must ornament his goodness with every possible charm. <laughs> yeah. So she's really setting the bar very, very, very high. Oh, there's one other line I like where it says, Marianne was rejoiced to find her sister so easily pleased, which I think has got a lovely sting to it because you see Marianne being genuinely happy that Eleanor is happy, but at the same time feeling that she is so superior because her tastes and demands are so much more refined than Eleanor's. Yes. She's so much less willing to settle. Yes. But then again, there's this thing that bugs me a little bit all the way through on rereading is how very young the girls are. Hmm. Marianne should still be at high school today. So she's 16 and a half, say. Lydia is 15 and a half, so Marianne is only a year older than Lydia. Yes, on and off as I've been thinking about it, I've thought, though, there are quite a lot of girls in the last year of high school who have decided that they're looking for a soulmate who like the same music they mm. like and the same books they like, mm. and that's their vision mm. of a soulmate. Yeah. And some of them are are these very lively, quite popular girls like Marianne who drag their friends along with them (laughs) in this direction. Another thing that struck me in this one is she is very quick, Jane Austen, I mean, is very quick to jump into the comedy. Mm. She gives us the comedy of Fanny and John's discussion even before we get the more serious stuff about Eleanor and Marianne talking to one another. In fact, Fanny and John's conversation is the first dialogue in the book. And, of course, in Pride and Prejudice, the first dialogue was comedy as well. It was Mr and Mrs Bennet. It just came much earlier from the second paragraph of the first chapter, whereas John and Fanny's conversation isn't until chapter two. It's quite an original form of comedy. I mean, most people in comedy are older people. They're sort of grotesques, Mm. but they are not as grotesque as most people Mm. and it's just interesting that she didn't leap straight into the conventional in her comedy Mm. her first comedy is a young couple Mm. who are not normally perhaps I'm wrong but I don't think are normally the source of comedy Mm. particularly in the 1790s so in these first five chapters we only meet one of the romantic leads which is Edward yes he doesn't speak at all until practically the end until they're leaving we don't have any dialogue from Edward. He's spoken about by Eleanor and Marianne. And again, we get these lengthy authorial descriptions. We're told he was the eldest son of a man who died rich. He was not recommended to their good opinion by any peculiar graces of person or address. He was not handsome. His manners required intimacy. We don't see anything much about Edward except all these negatives that he's diffident, he's shy. Although his behaviour gives every indication of an open affectionate heart, we don't see it. And I'm going to be talking about this much more as we progress through it, because it's one of the things I made a big deal of in my university honours thesis, which is, I think, one of the big failures of this book is the lack of presentation of Edward and Colonel Brandon as characters. And I think a lot of that is there's so much off stage and there's so little dialogue is given to them. 
relative to the other characters. It's also different from when you think of Bingley and Darcy. We did comment that there was not very much of Bingley, but every time Bingley talks, you get a picture of exactly the kind of young man he is. Mm. You actually, and I'll probably talk more about this when we get a bit more dialogue from Edward. When Edward talks, you do actually get his personality, but he talks so seldom that it's not enough really to overcome this quite negative in the sense of absence of positive. Very pale, faded sort of portrayal of him. Yeah. Obviously, we were very surprised in Pride and Prejudice how much we were hearing of Darcy's thoughts in the first half of the book. Now, with the structure of this book, obviously we can't get Edward's thoughts because the whole point of the exercise is that, that Eleanor doesn't know and, more importantly, the reader doesn't know what Edward is thinking because we don't know his backstory. Yes. But, again, I think that's one of the things that helps us get to know Darcy. Yeah, we get dialogue, we get his thoughts. We don't get any of that from Edward, just the external. Yes, when we come to the others, perhaps we might say this more later, but we don't really know what Edward and Willoughby are thinking until their big declarations yes. much further on in the book. Yeah. That's actually pretty much everything I had for those first chapters. Well, the only other thing I'd put down is when is the book set in the 1790s or the 1810s? If anything, it's got a feeling more of the 1790s because there's no war going on, there's no soldiers, there's no nothing. We said at the time you don't get much of a sense in Pride and Prejudice either and there were occasional bits where we felt maybe this feels more 1790s than 1810s. It would make sense that there's even stronger 1790s sense in Sense and Sensibility given that it had that 1790s revision before yes. the 1810s revision, whereas Pride and Prejudice had the first impressions writing in the 1790s and then nothing until the 1810s big revision. Yes. So did you have a favourite sentence from the chapters? This sentence is incredibly long and I don't know if I'm going to be able to say it. It's from the first chapter where Jane Austen is explaining why the Dashwood girls got such a bad look in. The whole was tied up for the benefit of this child who, on occasional visits with his father and mother at Norland, had so far gained on the affections of his uncle by such attractions as are by no means unusual in children of two or three years old, an imperfect articulation, an earnest desire of having his own way, many cunning tricks and a great deal of noise as to outweigh all the value of all the attention which for years he had received from his niece and her daughters. I mean, actually, that's a pretty easy sentence to read when it's so long, (laughs) from full stop to full stop, Mm. yes. Yeah. She really does seem to have quite a down on children, or at least on spoiled children in this book, because he's not the only one who will appear. Yes, yes. But the thing a bit I particularly like that in is I admire him because of his earnest desire of having his own way. <laughs> I, I just think that's a lovely way of describing <laughs> two and, two and three-year-olds and how charming it can, in fact, be. <laughs> what about yours? I actually highlighted quite a few out of John and Fanny's conversation because oh. there are so many gems in that. Yes. But... I think actually the one I'm going to use, and it's not particularly a favourite sentence, it's just because it's an echo of Pride and Prejudice with a completely different meaning. It's Eleanor talking about Edward in the conversation with Marianne about Edward appreciating her drawing. 
And Marianne's saying, what a pity he doesn't draw himself. And Eleanor says, had he ever been in the way of learning, I think he would have drawn very well. <laughs> Which, of course, is exactly what Lady Catherine well, says. I was just going to say, it's exactly. And her daughter, what a good pianist she would yeah. have been. So, <laughs> to be honest, I'm not quite sure what to make of the fact that here the line is presented absolutely straight. And I think... We're meant to take it absolutely straight. Oh, I think we are. Uh, I think there's no, absolutely no yeah, doubt about that. Yeah, And yet precisely the same words are used in Pride and Prejudice and we are absolutely meant to find it completely ridiculous. Yes, yes. It's just somehow bizarre that she can do this. Yes, and in a sense between two books that are sort of back to back. Mm. All the other lines I chose were from John and Fanny's conversation, and since we're going to be talking about John and Fanny, I thought I'll save it for then. So, like we did with Pride and Prejudice, every episode we're going to choose one or two characters from the book to talk about in a bit more detail. And for this episode, we've decided we're going to talk about John and Fanny Dashwood. Because they're two of the villains of the piece. The point I was going to say is that really Jane Austen disapproves of John and Fanny, but so do Eleanor Marianne and Mrs Dashwood. They are not at all approving of their relations. I mean, they may be justified, but the junior Dashwoods don't like them much. But then, of course, they don't like the junior Dashwoods <laughs> and they all live together for six months, mm. which is probably possible because Mrs Dashwood and Marianne, who might be taking offence at things, are still so completely swept away with grief and are just mourning and mm. thinking like that. Mm. But what I find is interesting is they're actually quite different as characters because John is introduced as with everyone else he gets this lengthy introduction in the first or second chapter where it says he was not an ill-disposed young man unless to be rather cold-hearted and rather selfish is to be ill-disposed but he was in general well respected for he conducted himself with a propriety in the discharge of ordinary duties had he married a more amiable woman he might have been made still more respectable than he was later in the book when he thinks mistakenly that Colonel Brandon is likely to propose to Eleanor he is genuinely very very pleased for Eleanor in fact he's delighted for it yeah but what we get with John Dashwood is he's really completely clueless about his effect on other people he has this real tunnel vision that is very focused on his wife I think it says somewhere that he's very fond of her well he only thought of his wife and child later when he's talking about Mrs Ferrers again he's very much adopted his wife's perspective of Mrs. Ferrers as this loving, kind, wonderful mother who has no choice but to cut off her son. Yes. So, so he's so focused on that and he has absolutely no idea that the people he's talking to might not agree with him. And then later on in the discussion about Colonel Brandon giving the living to Edward, John just cannot even conceive why you would do that. He, so it's just he has he has no empathy or understanding for how other people might think. Well, I suppose that's why he sort of can like Fanny so much, because Fanny is definitely self-centred. She has all the thoughts. Mm. He's just very conventional, Mm. but the conventions all sort of wave past him, and this time he'll pick up this convention, as he does from his father. Mm. His father thinks, I must look after my wife and the girls. And he thinks, yes, yes, you have to look after his wife and the girls, yes. And that's when he thinks, so I'll give each of the girls another £1,000. That's a good sum and he's very happy with himself about that. Yes. But, you know, Fanny is so different. 
she is very aware of what other people are thinking and she is absolutely 100% out for herself and her family. She's calculating and she's, I think, cruel. Yes. The fact that no sooner was his father's funeral over than Mrs John Dashwood, without sending any notice of her intention to her mother-in-law, arrived with her child and their attendants. And it also says that although they'd never much liked her, it wasn't until this time when they're actually living with her for six months that she has the opportunity of showing them with how little attention to the comfort of other people she could act when occasion required it. So she's very cunning in manipulating John into coming around to her point of view. That scene where she talks him from £3,000 down to nothing is just... Yes, well, it's one of the really good comic. And you say it turns up in the popular culture. Oh, yeah, every adaptation of the book has that scene, mostly with some or all of the dialogue directly from the book because you really can't improve on it. Yeah. Lines like, but then if Mrs Dashwood should live 15 years, we should be completely taken in. (laughs) And... Indeed, to say the truth, I am convinced within myself that your father had no idea of your giving them any money at all. They will be much more able to give you something. <laughs> yeah. Jane Austen, the author, is really very, very critical of her. Yes. And she's also critical of John, but she almost kind of forgives John because he is so oblivious to everything yeah, else. Well, yes. She's kind of a little bit soft on John. In 2011, I went to the Jane Austen Society of North America annual general meeting, which was about Sense and Sensibility because it was the 200th anniversary. And one of the talks I went to was by William Phillips, and it was called Meaner Than a Texas Polecat, Present-Day Perspective on Austen's Largest Cast of Nasties. I don't know if the paper is recorded anywhere. I don't know if I got papers from the conference. I couldn't find it anywhere online. But what I distinctly remember is he went through all the villains. He was kind of ranking them in order. But his number one villain in the whole book was John Dashwood. I think this is actually tied up in the very title he gave his paper of present day perspective because his reason for disliking John Dashwood so very much is because later in the book when John is talking about all the expenses he's undergoing, one of them is he's embarking on the enclosure of land. So he ranks him as the highest villain because by that act of enclosing the land, he is causing untold misery to to a much greater number of people. Which Um, which doesn't really make sense because it's quite likely that Sir John Middleton also enclosed land, so he's doing very well. So it does seem to me that, yeah, well, I'm not denying that, yes, enclosing the land was causing misery. As you say, that in and of itself doesn't make him worse even in this book than Sir John Middleton. And... Unlike Fanny and later Mrs. Ferrers and certainly Lucy Steele, there is nothing calculating in what he's doing. He he causes misery to his stepmother and his half-sisters, but he's almost naive. Well, yes, yes, he is. Mm. I'm still thinking of the enclosures. He's quite late if he's doing some enclosing. Admittedly, this means that old Mr. Dashwood didn't do any enclosing, but still... Just about all those landowners in Jane Austen would have done some enclosing. Yeah. And yeah, I'm certainly not saying John Dashwood is not one of the villains, one of the nasties of the book, because he absolutely is. But I I personally would place him lower on the list than than Fanny, than Mrs. Ferrers, than Lucy. Well, you you can't say his enclosing was necessarily any worse than any of the others. Yeah. That entire strand of society was guilty. But just to conclude on John and Fanny, I do think they are 
particularly fun examples of Jane Austen's comic characters. Whereas in Pride and Prejudice, I've never really gotten on with Mr. Collins and I've only so-so on Lady Catherine because they are so over the top. John and Fanny are, they're also, I'd like to think, a little unrealistic in how over the top they are, but they're not... They're They're not grotesques. Yeah, they're not grotesques. And they are both horrible and funny at the same time. Yes. The historical background I'm going to be looking at today is set out very much for us right at the beginning of the book in the first few pages of chapter one, and that is the question of inheritance and marriage settlements. Which, of course, really makes chapter one not what you expect if you've thought of Jane Austen always as a romance novelist. Having the chapter starting with all this legal stuff is really quite unusual. Anyway, there are two questions that we're looking at. First of all, what does Jane Austen mean when she says Mr Henry Dashwood, that is the girl's father, was the legal inheritor of Norland Estate? And what is implied when she says that John Dashwood, his son, was amply provided for by the fortune of his mother, which had been large and half of which devolved on him on his coming of age? Well, what being the legal heir meant was that if... Old Mr Dashwood had died without a will. Henry Dashwood would have been the one to inherit it because according to the common law, land always went as a parcel. It wasn't divided up. It went by primogeniture. So what we gather from this, if he was the legal heir, he's probably then the eldest son of old Mr Dashwood's brother, his next eldest brother. Yep. But we don't hear anything about his brothers or his aunts or his uncles or anything. But <laughs> yeah. anyway, he definitely was that sort of inheritor. But of course, for a long time, several hundred years, in English law, it had been perfectly possible for the owner of the land to decide who it went to. It didn't have to go to this legal heir. He could leave a will overriding this customary practice so that it didn't necessarily go to the next person by blood relations. But but of course, it says Mr Henry Dashwood was the legal inheritor, but it also says that old Mr Dashwood had intended to make a will and leave it to him anyway, the person to whom he intended to bequeath it. But by the time he was making this will, all these arrangements had been made so that somebody could decide what happened to the land, not just after he died, but after the person who inherited it died. And if he was worried about somebody leaving it to a woman, he had an entail. If he'd thought that the person who was the legal heir was unsuitable, he could leave it to somebody else. And we saw all this in Pride and Prejudice, of course, where there was the entail leaving the Bennetts' property to Mr Collins. And in this case, though, what he wanted to do was just leave it to the rampageous little boy. (laughs) (laughs) So what this basically means is if old Mr Dashwood hadn't left a will, then it would have gone to Mr Henry Dashwood, who then could have written a will and had he so wished, completely cut out his own son and left it only to his daughters or his wife. Or indeed, if old Mr Dashwood had written a will but simply bequeathed it to Mr Henry Dashwood, then again, Henry Dashwood could have cut his son out or left it to his son, but then the son might have 
for whatever reason, decided not to leave it to his own son. So what was happening is that old Mr. Dashwood, because he'd become so entranced by this little boy, (laughs) wanted to make absolutely certain that it did go to the little boy. It didn't get filtered off somewhere along the way. Yes, that, that, that seemed to be very much the case. And so that's, as you said, the same situation as in Pride and Prejudice, which you talked about in our last season, which is that it's all put in a trust. So... Mr. Henry Dashwood and then his son, they will get all the income from the property, but they can't do anything with the property that the trustees don't approve. That's very much the case, yes. Until it gets to little Henry, at which point, under that arrangement, he will then become the legal owner of it and can sell it if he wants to, unless there's been a subsequent arrangement. But the other money that's floating around in the Dashwood family and around the Norland estate is the money that is brought by wives into the marriage. Again, another one of these legal things had been already worked out where a family that left property or land to a girl could make absolutely sure that it never became the absolute property of her husband. A marriage settlement, in effect, decided what would happen to that money and very often it was more or less indicated in the marriage settlement that it would only go to the husband for his life and then would be inherited by his children. And this seems to have happened to Mr Henry Dashwood. He married a well-off woman. The first Mrs Dashwood. And and that fortune, according to their marriage settlements, was if she died. Half was to go to her husband for life but the other half was to go to her eldest child, John, when he turned 21. Mm. And on the strength of that, and obviously his being heir presumptive to Norland, Mrs Ferris and her daughter think he's a sort of a good proposition. So he then marries Fanny Ferris, and they're settled that way. So Mrs Ferris, who we know is very wealthy from whatever source, settled a substantial sum of money on Fanny I think the picture we have of Mr Henry Dashwood is that from some source he had £7,000 and he's getting sort of regular income from that. And when he's married to his first wife, they have her money they're living on. When she dies, John is probably only about six or seven by then. So he still has all her income and on the strength of that, he marries second Mrs Dashwood and has the three girls. And then they go to live with old Mr Dashwood. They've still got the whole of the first wife's fortune. But then at some point, John Dashwood turns 21. So half of that goes away from them. But they've still got £7,000 that Mr Dashwood had apart from the money from his wife. And yet you'd think he might have done something, but we are told much later that second Mrs Dashwood was a woman who had never saved anything in her life. So they obviously weren't really trying to build up a backlog. It says that until the will was read, he had expected to inherit it and therefore to be able to leave it as he wished. I think we can assume he would have left the main part of the property to his son, but he would have been able to do more for his daughters. Well, he when, pr- when he learned that he couldn't, it says that he might reasonably hope to live many years and by living economically lay by a considerable sum from the produce of an estate already large and capable of almost immediate improvement. Which is, of course, what Mr Bennett didn't do. 
Yeah, Mr. Bennett, in later in life, thought he should have been prudent and laid aside a sum every year. Yes. Mr. Dashwood thinks the same, but he has a better excuse than Mr. Bennett for yes. not doing it in that he dies in a year. And we also get a slight hint of why John Dashwood had to spend money on enclosures. Yes, because, because it, it, it says it was um, capable of almost immediate improvement, which, which I guess means that old Mr Dashwood hadn't been very up to the mark with all the latest developments from the agrarian revolution and yes. so not just enclosures, there could well have been other kinds of improvement that could have yes, been done that yes. John Dashwood then, then <laughs> undertook at great personal expense. Yes. <laughs> yes. Anyway, what John Dashwood then we're also told gets after his father dies he gets an extra four thousand. So, so we it was four thousand pounds a year? Four thousand a year, yes. Okay. So that would be four thousand a year, partly coming from the Norland estate and partly that other half of his the mother's. The other half of his mother's estate. You know, you can make any sort of guesses was Norland two thousand and his mother's four thousand, or was Norland three thousand and his mother's Two thousand, so he gets the extra. But that one. still means he's on at least. Oh, he's he's got to be on at least five thousand a year, which puts him above Bingley and half of Darcy, and he's probably on more than that. Oh yes. And then when he undertakes these improvements longer term, he's yes. going to be on an even higher income well, level. He, no, he must be at least five thousand a year. Oh yes, yeah, so of course that's not counting what Fanny's bringing. What in. Fanny's bringing? Yes. So Fanny's probably brought in something like a thousand a year or more. Yeah. So he's practically up there with Darcy, isn't yeah, he? definitely above Bingley, probably a bit below Darcy, but certainly one of the more well-off people we encounter in Jane Austen. So far, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think anywhere, really. Mm. Okay, so now I'm going to talk a bit about the pop culture versions of Sense and Sensibility. Like Pride and Prejudice, there have been a number of straight film and TV adaptations. As far as I'm aware, there have been four. There was a 1971 TV version with Joanna David as Eleanor and Kieran Madden as Marianne. Joanna David, of course, in 1995 played Aunt Gardner to In Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Then in 1981, there was another TV version, this time with Irene Richard as Eleanor and Tracy Childs as Marianne. Irene Richards, also in the early 1980s, played Charlotte Lucas in Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> then the only cinema version, big screen version, was the 1995 version with Emma Thompson as Eleanor and Kate Winslet as Marianne. I think in some of the versions that have come after this, they have drawn almost as much on that version of it as they have on the original book. And then in 2008, there was another TV series, just over three longer episodes, with Hattie Morahan playing Eleanor and Charity Wakefield playing Marianne. So those are the four straight adaptations. When we were talking about Pride and Prejudice, I said that as well as the adaptations, there are what I'm calling the modernizations, the continuations, which are the sequels, and the variations, which are taking it and doing something different with it. There have been a lot of continuations, sequels to the story, most of which I'm not familiar with. Then, of course, there have been the modernizations. As with Pride and Prejudice, there have been quite a few. I haven't seen all of these yet, but the ones that I'm aware of, again, there may be more... There's an American film called Material Girls with Hilary and Hayley Duff in it. There's another one called From Prada to Nada, which is a Latin American take on it. 
There's one that I saw many years ago at the Jane Austen Society conference called Sense and Sensibility, scent as in perfume. That I didn't realise at the time, but I believe that's another Church of Latter-day Saints version of Jane Austen. And finally, the other film version I'm aware of is a Bollywood version. And whereas Bride and Prejudice was a sort of American Bollywood because it was done in English, the Bollywood version of Sense and Sensibility was done in Tamil and seems to have variously been translated as either I have found it or I have seen it, I have seen it. I haven't watched that version yet either. Is it available with subtitles? Or I, I believe so, yes. Yes. There's also a web series that I've only just started watching called Eleanor and Marianne Take Barton, which oh. is Marianne setting up a web diary of her experience at university. This is a British one, whereas Lizzie Bennet Diaries was American. I think it's a bit lower budget as well. And there's also been, as with Pride and Prejudice, there have been many written modernizations as well again most of which I haven't read but I did read the one in the Austin project by Joanna Trollope called Sense and Sensibility so as well as these modernizations there are variations one of the variations is in parallel with Pride and Prejudice and Zombies there's Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters (laughs) I think I said before I really didn't enjoy Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I didn't think it was particularly cleverly done and for that reason I haven't actually read Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. These are written, I thought you said they were films. No, well Pride and Prejudice and Zombies was a film but it was a book first. Oh, I see. Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters is just a book. So that's a quick summary of what's out there that I'm aware of. So I just thought I'd touch briefly some general comments in the openings of the various adaptations. So the 1971 version with Joanna David and Kieran Madden, I'm watching it for the first time, only doing it as we're going through the book. A couple of things that struck me with it. It's not a particularly high budget. The hairstyles are very 1970s. (laughs) Regency through the eyes of the 1970s. Oh, now one thing that did strike me with all of these adaptations, I believe that all of the Dashwood women should probably be in mourning for most of the course of what happens in the book. I don't know exactly what the rules of mourning are, but I would have thought with the loss of a husband and a father, you should be wearing black for, for quite at some... least the first six months yeah. anyway. So yeah. they should be wearing it at least until they go to Devonshire. Yeah. And then they'd probably be moving. I'm not sure. There was also a transition then into a deep purple and then into into a light mauve. But yeah. that may not have come in by the 1790s. Yeah. Yeah. And it is notable in the 1971 version that... The women are mostly wearing sort of blacks and greys. Margaret doesn't appear in this version. Margaret is often cut, in fact. (laughs) Not surprisingly. (laughs) Yes. One interesting thing in this is that Marianne is reading Mrs Radcliffe, Ah. which I find unconvincing. Well, the point I I would say is they're too highbrow. I mean, they'd read Mrs Radcliffe but they don't get excited about Mm. it. Obviously, Jane Austen read Mrs Radcliffe, but I don't think she put her in the same category as, say, Fanny Burney or something like that. Well, that's what I'd fear. Yeah, that that was kind of what I felt as well. Because in another way, Jane Austen thought it was appropriate to make fun of Mrs Radcliffe. You don't find her making fun of Fanny Burney and Maria Edgeworth Mm, and other quality people. Yeah, the impression you get is she had no issue with people reading Mrs Radcliffe. Oh, no. But she did draw some kind of line between Mrs Radcliffe and higher culture. Yes. It seemed that way to me anyway. 
In the 1981 version with Irene Richard and Tracy Childs, one thing I quite liked about this is the opening credits are behind Eleanor and Marianne sitting on a seesaw, which is, yeah, it's kind of infantile. But at the same time, I really like that way it's, it's showing the opposition of the sisters. That's a really clever way of picking up on it. And anyway, does one know a seesaw was so, was so juvenile then? It mm. might have been one of the fun things you did. Yeah. And in fact, when Eleanor and Marianne are having a conversation about Edward, they're on the seesaw. And then when Eleanor sort of finishes it and she's cross with Marianne, she gets off and lets Marianne go bump to the ground. Which is kind of fun. Yes. This one again, Marianne has been reading Gothic novels. This version I have seen before, although it's been a while and I've forgotten the details, but one thing I remember about this version that struck me as a little, again, a little odd, is that one of the things Colonel Brandon introduces Marianne to is the joys of Shakespeare. And I just thought, no. No, no. (laughs) Since they could read to themselves properly, they've been reading Shakespeare. They've been reading Shakespeare together. As a family, they've been reading Shakespeare. It's a given. Oh, yes. Margaret, again, doesn't appear in this version. Then we have the 1995 version with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet. This was a screenplay actually written by Emma Thompson, and Emma Thompson won her second Oscar for this screenplay. This is probably my favourite adaptation of the book, but I do have to say it departs quite significantly from Jane Austen's work. I feel while in a lot of ways it does keep to what I think are the main thematic concerns of the book, she does a lot of fleshing out of the characters in a way that is not opposed to what Jane Austen wrote, but she does not write characters that Jane Austen would have written, I don't think. Yes, yes. Another really interesting thing with this film, the director they chose was Ang Lee, the Taiwanese director. And I believe at that stage, he may not have even done any English language films. So I was very, very surprised when I learned that he was going to direct it. But I think what he brought was coming from a more rigid culture. He brought a lot of sense of unspoken and constraints. There are certain scenes such as the one later in the film between Eleanor and Edward where you get all the undercurrent and nothing needs to be said because he brought it out in the actors. So one of the things Emma Thompson did with her screenplay in this is she obviously decided, rightly so, that Edward needed to be made more of a character that you could really get behind Eleanor wanting to be with. So first of all, they cast Hugh Grant. Which um, it doesn't fit in with him not being terribly handsome. No, it absolutely doesn't fit in with him not being handsome and attractive. And also in casting Hugh Grant, they brought a lot of the Hugh Grant style of character, which is slightly inarticulate, slightly awkward. Well, diffident. Yeah, diffident. But absolutely charmingly. Yes. It's almost diffident as a way of getting people in. It's not true deep diffidence so much as charming diffidence. Yes, which, as I said, it's not opposed to what Jane Austen wrote in the book, but it is definitely not the character Jane Austen envisaged, I don't think. So that was one change. But another thing she did, again, I think to really bring out the character of Edward or to make Edward likeable is she built up the character of Margaret. And so she's turned Margaret into this quite independent young girl who's got a treehouse and she likes geography and she wants to be a pirate. And so Edward sort of engages with her in all of that and there's a scene of them sword fighting together. I believe it was done to really make Edward someone you're on side with right from the start. Yes. And again, absolutely not what Jane Austen would have done, but it worked for me. Jane Austen wants you to be with Edward from the start. Yeah, she just doesn't do it. 
But yeah. it's definitely not against the spirit of the book. No, but the character... If the experienced Jane Austen had come back and rewritten this book, I think she, she would have presented a much better, more likeable, more engaging Edward. I do yes. not think she would have presented the character that Emma Thompson presents. Yes. That, I think, is a particularly significant change apparent right from the start of, of this film version. The, the development of Edward and the building up of Margaret, primarily in these early scenes to help the development of Edward. But also, she makes Margaret an absolutely charming character in yes. and of herself. Another interesting thing I noticed is the scene which is touched on in the book and, of course, developed in these adaptations of Fanny talking to Mrs Dashwood because she's not happy about Eleanor and Edward. In this one, Fanny really articulates how Edward is the kind of person who could easily be taken in by someone and having given his word, he would never go back on it. <laughs> so she's absolutely laying out for the audience, and I think this is particularly for the audience who may be less familiar with the sort of social mores of the time. So Fanny lays it out for you right then and there up front under the guise of this is what Eleanor will do, but is able to therefore set out for you so you understand why he doesn't just dump Lucy yes. when he's fallen for Eleanor, which yes. I thought was, again, quite a good way of doing it. Yes. But yes. it's very much when you know the story, it's like telling the story that's going to happen. <laughs> The 2008 version with Hattie Morahan and Charity Wakefield, that was directed by Andrew Davis, who did the 1995 Pride and Prejudice. Mm. Instead of opening with the death of Mr. Henry Dashwood, this one opens with Willoughby's seduction of Eliza. They're not named. If you knew the actor who was playing Willoughby, I don't know if you would recognise his voice up front, but my feeling is if anyone identified either then or later that the person in this first scene is Willoughby, that just defeats the whole purpose. You're supposed to like Willoughby at the start. Yes. So that learning this is a terrible shock. I guess I can see he... Well, I think Andrew Davis has become more and more interested in including sex scenes. Yeah. But I think maybe he wanted to start with showing some of the dark undercurrent of this book because there is a lot of dark undercurrent oh, yes. and sense of yes. sensibility. But for me, that opening scene just jarred. And also, you have it, and then he rides away, you can only see his back, she's looking out the window, and then it moves on to the story proper. And you're kind of left for quite a long time, not even knowing what that was there for. Yes. Again, as with all the others, the scene between John and Fanny uses a lot of dialogue from the book. A bit like the 1995 version, it's covered, some of it close up, some of it in voiceover, sort of in segments as you see them moving from London to Norland. This one, like the 1995 version, and I feel drawing on the 1995 version, has built up Margaret as a character. In, yeah. in this case, though, she doesn't want to be a pirate, she wants to be a writer. In this one, as in the 1995 version, Margaret sometimes hides under the furniture. In this one, as in the 1995 version, one of the ways Edward engages himself is by being good with Margaret. Yes. So this, I feel, yes, it's theoretically possible it could have been come up with independently, but I just feel it is drawing so much on Emma Thompson's work as yes. well as on Jane Austen's work. Yes. Also, in casting Dan Stevens as Edward, I think they're also going for a kind of Hugh Grant sort of look. Yes. But in this one, Edward is so much more confident when he first arrives. Yes. In... One of the earlier versions, I think it was the 1971 version, Edward had a pronounced stammer. In the 1995 version with Hugh Grant playing Edward, of course, part of Hugh Grant's shtick is that he often introduces a slight stammer into this particular Hugh Grant persona, so he had that. Yeah. He had that awkwardness. In this one, Edward has 
no stammer, he's much more confident, he's much more willing to face off against Fanny. Again, they, they make him nicer, you can see what Eleanor falls for. So I did feel this most recent, as in 12 years ago, TV series, in some ways it was drawing very heavily on Emma Thompson's screenplay. And that was something that also struck me when I was reading Joanna Trollope's modernisation of Sense and Sensibility as part of the Austen Project. Not a great deal, nowhere near as much, but just a few things that struck me. There's mention in that one of Margaret having a treehouse. Yes. Now... The treehouse is such a key part of Margaret's character in the Emma Thompson version. She has this big, impressive treehouse when they're at Norland, and then right at the very, 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 very end of the film, she's got another treehouse at Barton Cottage. It's smaller, but it's there. So Margaret and treehouses are a thing that Emma Thompson introduced, Yes, but that happens in the Joanna Trollope book. The yes. description of Edward in the Joanna Trollope book is not... A million miles away from a description of Hugh Grant. I think it I think it talks about him having floppy hair or something. Oh right. So there are definite echoes of Emma Thompson. The setup in Joanna Trollope, Eleanor has been studying to be an architect but hasn't finished her training yet. Yes. Marianne plays the guitar. Yes. Margaret doesn't seem to do much except listen to her iPod. <laughs> <laughs> Marianne also suffers from asthma, which is what killed their father. He died of an asthma attack. Oh, right. And Edward has basically says he would have liked to be involved in some sort of social work. Yes. In terms of the modernisation films, the only ones I've seen thus far are Material Girls and Sense and Sensibility. But one thing that certainly struck me with Material Girls, which frankly was not a very good film, and I suspect is also the case with From Prada to Nada, is whereas the focus of the book is on the two different ways the girls react to life in general and romantic problems in particular. These modernisation film versions, the main focus seems to be going from a very privileged lifestyle to a very unprivileged lifestyle, having to get a demeaning job, having to struggle to get a job, having to cope with not being able to have stuff. I haven't watched from Prada to Nada yet, but just from the title it seems that That is the focus. So certainly Material Girls was only nominally related to Sense and Sensibility in that there were two sisters. Yes. I couldn't even always work out for sure which was meant to be which. There were one or two small plot points that intersected, but overall, if you hadn't been told it was based on Sense and Sensibility, you quite probably wouldn't wouldn't pick it. But I did find that interesting that it does seem like some, if not all, of these modern adaptations in films have such a different focus just on the richest of rags rather than how to cope with things generally. Because really, other than leaving Barton, I don't think it's thematically significant to the book. They are not Jane Fairfax. They are not Fanny Price. No. They actually still have... They have enough. They're more like Mrs and Miss Bates than than that. Well, Well, no, I think think the Bateses are much worse off than them. Well, well, no, well, they're like the Austens. Yeah. I guess modernisation, so having to deal with the fact that if you lose your privileged lifestyle, you have to get a job. Over the break, we had an email from Rebecca who said she's been enjoying the podcast and who also said she was pleasantly surprised to hear us mention the Sheila K. Smith and G.B. Stern book, which is a favourite of hers. And I've got to say, I was really pleased to know that there are other people who are aware of this book because... While we mentioned it a few times in the previous season, I don't think we actually talked about what it is. It's 
a book they wrote, well, two books. Well, two books. Two books, Talking of Jane Austen and More Talk of Jane Austen, where they just pick different aspects of the books, you know, characters they like or speculation, that sort of thing, and write about them. When were they written again? The first one was written in 1943, and the second one, I think, was just after the war. So, you know, they were written a long time ago. Yeah. They were the first books I came across that were conversational about Jane Austen rather than literary criticism about Jane Austen. And of course, there's actually a lot more of that about now. We've mentioned some of them before, and I'm sure we will be again. But at least in my experience, which of course is not comprehensive, they were possibly the first. Sheila K. Smith and G.B. Stern were both novelists in their time. They were novelists from the 20s and 30s. They were born late 1880s, early 1890s Mm. and were obviously friends. I think some of her stuff might have been republished by Virago in the 1980s, but really I think they've both pretty much disappeared, which is why it was so nice to know that other people out there also read and enjoy talking of Jane Austen. And we're probably going to be talking about them again this season because they've made some interesting points about sense and sensibility particularly about Mrs Dashwood so when we come to talk about Mrs Dashwood I'm sure we'll be mentioning them again yes you've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me Harriet and me Ellen in our next episode we'll be looking at chapters 6 to 11 of Sense and Sensibility The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.